before we get to the series, I just want to uh, acknowledge something, and that is that uh, there's a lot of pain in our world today. Uh, our, our world has been um, faced with the brutal realities of war. And I was thinking about what to say because I think that something needs to be said about it. And um, I thought, you know, it's very risky to say anything today. <laughs> Even if you love your mom, it's like it's a risky thing for you to say today because you're always being judged uh, through some sort of political lens. But um, I want to approach um, this acknowledgement from a place of lament. There's a lot of people approaching it from a perspective of prophecy, others politically. I, I, wanna, I wanna approach it from a place of lament. As a matter of fact, the psalm that we're gonna read today is part of a group of psalms in the Bible known as the Psalms of Lament. And uh, oftentimes uh, when things happen, one of the things that we don't know how to do, especially Western Americans, is lament. We don't know how to lament. The Bible is a book that teaches us about the importance and the value of learning to lament. And so let me make five acknowledgements from this posture of lament. The, the first thing I'd like to acknowledge is that terrorism is evil and there's no justification for terrorism whatsoever. Uh, what happened on October 7th was an act of terrorism that targeted innocent uh, civilians, some of the most vulnerable in society, like the elderly, uh, infants, uh, teenagers, students, and that has to be repudiated. And we acknowledge, therefore, the pain of those who lost loved ones uh, in that um, tragedy that took place on October 7th, which leads to the second acknowledgement, which is that there is no place in this world for terrorist organizations like Hamas. And therefore, we should pray as the people of God that there would be an end to these organizations. It is our longing, it is our desire that these organizations would come to an end. Which leads me to the third acknowledgement, and that is that Palestinians should not be confounded with Hamas. Uh, this uh, tragedy, this terrorist act was perpetrated by Hamas. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. In fact, the majority of the people that live in Palestine do not identify themselves uh, with Hamas. They're actually victims of Hamas, and that needs to be acknowledged, which leads us to uh, the fourth acknowledgement, and uh, that is that uh, there's a lot of pain right now. Uh, uh, Israelis and Jews are suffering and mourning the deep pain and the loss that they have gone through, and so are Palestinians that live in Palestine who are suffering right now as well. So we must acknowledge that. And as Christians, uh, we are called to mourn and to cry with those who mourn and those who cry, Romans 12. And our hearts, therefore, ought to go to everyone who is suffering the tragedies of this war uh, at this very moment. And the last acknowledgement that I'd like to make is that there's hope for pain and suffering and tragedies and war and acts of terrorism in this world. Because we believe that Jesus one day, as we read uh, Revelations 21, will rid the world of all 
evil, and he will dry up every tear, and that shalom, his peace, will one day reign. And so as the people of God in the present, we live for that hope, we pray for that hope, and we work towards that hope. That is, as we as a people of God should do, and the posture that we should take in light of all that has happened. We are called to pray for the peace in Jerusalem, and we believe that one day peace will be finally established there as Jesus Christ will return and will reign from the throne in Jerusalem. So let's pray for that. Uh, Father, we are commanded in your scriptures to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, a city that um, is filled with uh, different types of people. It's not a homogeneous city by any means, and we acknowledge all of the pain that has happened in that place and the surrounding regions. And Father, we pray that you would bring healing to those who are suffering. As your people, we also pray that you would put an end to terrorist acts and terrorist organizations, that you would bring judgment upon those who have killed the innocent uh, for a political cause. And, and therefore, Father, we today, we want to rest our hearts as we lament all the tragedy and all the loss in the hope of your Son and Savior who will come to restore all things and reestablish full shalom over all of the earth. And that day, we believe that your glory will cover the earth as the waters covers the seas, as said the prophet. And so we rest our hearts in that hope today as we go to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so this series was launched last week, The Fight Within. And the idea in the series is that we acknowledge that life is a fight, that the the life that we live in this world is characterized by struggle. However, we are acknowledging that some of the fiercest fights that we will ever engage in uh, are the fights and the conflicts that take place on the inside. And so last week, we looked at the enemy of fear and how we are taught by the Word of God of how to fight fear that tends to paralyze us. Today we're going to talk about loneliness. Uh, loneliness has become a real problem in our world today. Uh, what we learn is that Americans deeply struggle with loneliness as most people living in the West. I have some statistics here that over 50% of Americans have reported their struggle with the issue of loneliness. 52%, where's the slide? 52% of Americans struggle with loneliness. For over 40% of Americans say this, that uh, all of their relationships are not meaningful, that most of their relationships are lack of meaning. What that means is that there are a lot of people here in this room, almost half of that, those statistics are true, that would say that the relationships that they're currently living in are void of meaning. They're superficial. And 57%, whether you're married or not, have reported eating all meals alone. More than half. That's insane. And here's a second slide showing this, that all of those who reported feeling lonely, 
Number one, over 50% of them, 58% in fact, have said that their loneliness, their state of loneliness has affected their mental health. 55% have said that their feelings of loneliness have affected their physical health. That, uh, go back to the previous slide, that 49% of them have experienced their loneliness affect their personal relationships. 33% their ability to do their work and that 31% have considered harming themselves and 15% of committing a violent act to themselves. This is where we find ourselves today. This is the latest data about what loneliness is doing to our culture. And this is somewhat ironic to me because as the world is becoming more and more urban, meaning people are moving to cities at a very fast rate, so much so that they say that by the year 2050, 83% of the world's population will be living in a city. And cities at the same time are becoming denser and denser. I mean, if you haven't noticed the density that has taken place in Miami in the last couple of years of how the density has increased. You can feel it in the traffic of when you're being placed on a waiting list at a school because your kids don't have a spot there. Like if you haven't felt the increase in density, you're, you're living your life just maybe in your little neighborhood and you haven't been gone, going out a lot into the rest of the city. Now, even though these things are happening, people are feeling lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. As technology also uh, continues to develop AI, social media, and it puts us in contact with people all over the world in various forms of communication, human beings are becoming lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. Isn't that ironic? And here's another thing that we must consider, that we live in a city that even though it's filled with colors and it's vibrant, uh, it's a lonely city. I remember in 2015 reading this article that came out in the Huffington Post of a man that lived among some of the world's largest cities, and he had just finished his time here in Miami. He lived here a couple of years, and he says that, Yes, it's a huge contrast. Even though the city seems like a friendly city, it's an extremely lonely city. In the article, The Lonely Gringo, he says, Miami and love are oxymoronic. <laughs> this is a freaking tough city just to have friends in, to break the circle of friendships. And uh, maybe that's the, the, the experience that you've had here as you've moved here. Maybe this is the experience of people that you know that have had as they've moved here, and it's become a very tough place to do life, it's a real problem. And I think about loneliness as a problem and trying to make sense of it in light of scripture. This is what I realized first, and that is that uh, when God created the world, he created a perfect world. So much so that he looks at, at his created order and he says, it is very good. But the only problem, <laughs> the only problem that God points out in his perfect creation was when Adam was roaming in the garden alone without Eve. 
the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have a conversation as they see him roaming around, around, uh, around the, the animals and among the plants and say, it is not good, it is not good that man is alone because we were created for deep and meaningful relationships. And so we must address this issue of loneliness and we must be a community where people may find hope in the context of their loneliness here in the city. That's what we are called to be as a church, a hospitable people of God. And, but in order to do that, we must learn how to fight loneliness. How do we fight loneliness in light of the word of God? You know, uh, we're going to go to Psalm 13. You know, David records a moment in his life in the form of a poem, of a song, of when he struggled with loneliness. And we're going to learn what David did in order to defeat and not to be overcome by loneliness. So let's go to Psalm 13. Uh, this is very informing to us. And this is what David writes. It's a short psalm, so we're going to read all of it. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, and I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. So, as David shares with us in the form of uh, poetry, a moment of his life where he was going through this deep sense of loneliness. Uh, what do we learn? Uh, first, we learn about the source of loneliness. What's underneath the surface of our lives when we are experiencing deep loneliness? What's underneath the surface? Then secondly, I want us to center our hearts around the truth. So let's look then secondly at the truth about loneliness. There's four sets of truth that we find here in this psalm. And then, and then lastly, let's learn how to fight uh, loneliness. He gives us a way for us to be able to train our hearts, able to fight loneliness so that we are not overwhelmed and consumed by it. First, Let's look at the source of loneliness. David is very real. He is very honest. That's why I love the Psalms is because he lets his feelings out. He writes them up and he shares that he is lonely. Uh, he is vulnerable. He says, how long, verse one, how long, O Lord, it's in the form of a question, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, I was thinking about this and David in that situation, we don't know, we don't have enough context of when he wrote these words, what was going on in his life when he was experiencing this deep sense of loneliness, but he does feel disconnected from people and he does feel disconnected from God. But here's something interesting that I was meditating on. That is the fact that David was a king. This is contextual. Okay, now we don't know the season and time. We, I already said that, but, but this we know about David, that David was king in Israel. And, and kings, as we read about the life of David, um, 
in other books of the Bible, other books of the New Testament, we learn that David was surrounded by people. That David had manservants, female servants. He had advisors, cabinet advisors, and he had generals, and he had family. He had more than one wife, many children. So he was always surrounded by people. David had many comforts in life. He was king. He had access to all sorts of great things. And yet, even though he is surrounded by people, and even though he has a relationship with God, we know of his relationship with his God, there's a moment in his life where he experiences a deep sense of loneliness, which goes to show us that loneliness has nothing to do with the external environment, our external environment. It has everything to do with our internal environment. I remember having dinner several months ago at the house of this pastor. Me and my wife, we were there having dinner with his wife, and he, he, he leads a very large uh, church, and, and he was sharing with us of how he really appreciated that meal. And I said, why do you appreciate this time so much? And he says, because I just feel so lonely. And this is a person who is very hospitable, who is very sociable. Their church was planted by bringing people into their living room. There's not a night of the week that people from church are not, you know, going to his house for one particular reason or another. But he says, I just feel so lonely at times. And therefore, I need this. This is good for me. This is good for us. And I'm imagining now David who is a king who wears a crown. Most people around him, his advisors, his family, his friends, very few of them, almost none, understood the saying that heavy lays the crown. Unless you've been in that place, you don't understand what's going on. That's the reason for his loneliness. Look at verse 2 of what he says is, how long must I take counsel in my soul? Think about this. He has professional advisors, people that he pays to give him advice. He has prophets and he has generals and he has all sorts of different people giving him advice of decisions that he has to make on a daily basis. And yet he says, I can't take counsel with any of them. I have to resort to my own soul because you, O oh God, are is silent. I have to just talk to myself. What's going on here? He understands and he sees that most people around him do not have a clue what's going on inside of him. They don't understand his own experience because pain really isolates us. I, I, I remember reading this interview by this, uh, this reporter who was interviewing David Foster Wallace, the, um, the novelist who has died, um, but who was you know, kind of like a warm type of person, even though he was not a Christian or a religious person. But, they, but he asked him the question, he said, hey, why do you write novels? And his response, you know what it was? Because in this life, we suffer alone. And he says, my hope is by developing fictional characters and describing the internal reality of their hearts and of their souls so that I and others may find empathy with the people around us. I don't know if you've ever experienced what David is talking about here, what David Foster Wallace is describing, but when you went through moments of pain in life, 
Uh, maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you were a victim of some sort of injustice. Maybe you were abandoned by someone. You lost your job and you moved through life and you went to places like restaurants and gatherings and you looked around and says, nobody understands what I am going through right now. You feel alone. How many times in my life have I looked and said, when I went through difficult moments in ministry, <laughs> and ministry is filled with joy, don't get me wrong, and I thank God every day for the opportunity to do what he's called me to do and to wake up on Sundays and open his word with his people and encourage people. And I love to see lives being transformed by the power of the gospel. And, and, and I love the local church and I want to continue in, to plant local churches. This is my life's mission. But there are moments that are difficult in ministry and there are frustrating. And these moments are the moments when people don't understand what it means to stand in my shoes, to have the burden of leadership that I have received from God. And there are times that, you know, my wife and I, we lament and I say, that's okay, they don't get it. They don't get it because they're not in our shoes. They don't get it. You've been through that situation before in life, I'm sure. You know, it is possible right now, just, just think about this, it is possible right now that there are Jews and Israelis that feel extremely isolated and lonely because the rest of the world doesn't get what they have to go through all the time. It is possible that there are Palestinians right now that are feeling extremely lonely and isolated because the rest of the world think that all Palestinians are Hamas and Muslims. There are Christian Palestinians, a lot of them, actually, by the way. And they're trapped in a conflict and they look at the world and say, they don't get us, they don't understand. Empathy, empathy is a rare commodity in this life. And that is the fact and that's what plunges us into deep seasons of darkness and of loneliness because we look around and say, they just don't get me. And that's maybe you right now. I remember when Beth and I went through another season of life and we went through a miscarriage. And, you know, I know people mean well. They showed up at our house and they showed up with Bible verses and trying to pray over us and, you know, Bible juking us. And, you know, some of them, some of them uh, brought meals. That's great, but you could see, like, they don't understand what you're going through in life. They don't understand your loss. And maybe that's you right now. And you're going through that, and uh, that is the source of your loneliness. Uh, in this world that we live in, that's the source of people's loneliness is because they feel that they are unique and that they're alone in the darkness that they find themselves, that no one gets them, no one understands. But what is the truth about loneliness? What are the four pieces of truth that we find here in this passage as well we need to reorient our hearts around truth. And the first truth is that the enemy, the devil meaning, he takes advantage of our moments of vulnerability and he serves us lies. He lies to us in our darkest moments. David acknowledges that in verse 4. He says, consider me and answer me, O God. And then in verse 4 he says, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I believe the Bible is right when the Bible says that our battle, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, 
that live in the heavenly places, that we're fighting an unseen enemy all the time. And what this enemy does is when we are going through seasons like that, he comes and he preys on us. Some of us have been the victims of this type of spiritual oppression that David reports here, something that was very present more in the life of Saul than in the life of David. The devil comes and says, yeah, why are you? That's right. I mean, you're feeling alone. Why are you always the one that gets yourself in this type of situation? No one does except for you, right? And sometimes the devil sends people into your life to be his messenger. He says, you're the one that's always getting yourself in this kind of trouble. No wonder you're feeling this way. God, he doesn't care. You know he doesn't care. And then he comes back and he says, hey, listen, if you were to cease to exist, no one would miss you. Right? He does that. David is saying, I'm experiencing this with these external enemies, but it's beginning to take root in my soul as he shared in Psalm 3. He says, uh, don't let this creep into my heart. Don't let the enemy feed you lies. That's the first truth about Loneliness is that you are being fed lies by the enemy. Yes, it's very real, the lack of empathy. It may be very real, but the enemy is also feeding you lies. The second thing that we learn here in terms of truths about loneliness is that uh, there are moments in life that it, that it may seem that God does not see you in the situation, but I want to affirm you and say that he actually does. He saw Adam lonely in the garden. He sees David here lonely in this particular moment of his life. And he sees you in your loneliness right now. He sees you. I know that sometimes you cry alone. You go to bed uh, feeling alone. And, and God sees all of that. He sees you. The very reason why this lament, this prayer the psalm has become part of scripture. It's inspired by God is because it tells us that God saw that what was taking place, which was taking place inside of David's heart. So he sees you. Thirdly, even though it, it may seem that he does not hear you, he hears you. I think it's beautiful when you go back to the psalm and you read about the change that takes place between verses 4 and 5. In fact, from verses 1 through 4, David is expressing in a very raw way his pain to God. He is crying out to God, begging God to respond to him until verse 5. In verse 5, it changes. Actually, things radically change. <laughs> Look at what it says in verse 5. It's very different from the first four verses. It says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love and my heart will shall rejoice in your salvation. Wait, wait. It seems like this is not part of the same psalm. It seems like these are two different psalms. How do you change abruptly like that? It's because there's space between verses four and five. David cried out to God day after day, maybe for a long season. He did that. 
And at one point, he sends God hearing his cry. And when he sends the presence of God in his moment of pain, he changes the rhetoric. He changes the description of where his soul finds itself. He is now filled with joy. I rejoice, I rejoice in your salvation. Listen, you may be in a place right now where you're saying, I've stopped talking to God because I have called out to God, I've cried out to God day after day. It has taken weeks, it has taken months, it has taken years, and I am now convinced that he does not hear my cries. Maybe he's too busy with all of the different cries in the world, and maybe there are people that have more serious problems than, than I do, and I've just stopped praying. And what I want to encourage you based on the psalm is just because God may seem silent to you in the moment, it does not mean, it does not mean that he is not there. It does not mean that he has not heard your cries. You know, God decides sometimes to answer us immediately and sometimes he gives us time before he answers us, before he comes to our aid. But he is always there, and this psalm serves as a witness to this fact. He hears you. Fourthly, and lastly, in terms of the truth about loneliness, and that is, even though it seems that God may not get what you're going through, because he's this transcendent God, you know, living in a heavenly place, surrounded by choirs of angels. He doesn't know, he doesn't know what it's like to live the life that I live. Maybe that's the belief that is taking charge of your heart. And, but even though you may think that he does not get you, he does get you. And this is an insight that we have that David did not have. See, David had to look back and he had to trust the fact that God had been kind and, 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 and dealt bountifully with him. But here's what we know. A thousand years later, God comes in the flesh into the world. And he lives a life that is also filled by pain. We learn from Isaiah that he is a man filled with sorrows and well acquainted with grief, which means this, that there's nothing that you may be able to go through in life that God does not get and understand because he felt it in the flesh himself. So much so that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 15 he says this, that Jesus, our high priest, understands our weakness, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. You think that God doesn't understand what it means to be betrayed? You think God doesn't understand what it means to be a victim of injustice? You, you think that God doesn't understand what it means to experience abuse? You, 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 you think that God doesn't understand what it means to experience financial struggles in life? He'd been through all of it. And because of that, which is, by the way, very unique about Christianity, no other religion will say this about our God. Because of that, in the following verse in Hebrews 4, the author of Hebrews says this, Let us then, or therefore, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He gets you. I can say that for sure. As a matter of fact, he does get you. Which leads us to 
the last point, which is what do we do in order to train our hearts to be able to fight loneliness when it becomes a reality in our lives? First, the first thing we do, and we learn here from David, is seek proximity to God. You must do that which David is doing here. What is David doing? David is praying out his feeling of loneliness. What we are going to be saying throughout the series is this, is that the Psalms, the scriptures offers us a unique third way to deal with our feelings. The scripture does not encourage us to stuff our feelings like shame and honor and religious cultures do. The psalmist are not encouraging us to vent our feelings like modern psychology encourages us to do. The Psalms are always encouraging us to pray out our feelings to God, to take our feelings and process it with the greatest counselor of all, which is the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what we do. That's what we do. That's what David is doing here. He's seeking proximity to God. That's what Jesus did, by the way. When Jesus was filled with distress in life, when Jesus was overwhelmed with life, what did Jesus do? He sought time with the Father. Intimacy with God. He pursued that. Look, in Luke chapter 5, we read this. But Jesus often withdrew to the lonely places for prayer, before seeking the empathy of others, seek intimacy with God. Seek solitude with God before the empathy of others. That's got to be a principle in your life. Why? Because you were created primarily for this level of relationship with God. So you go to God first. You don't withdraw from God in your moments of loneliness. That's the primary relationship by which you were created for. Uh, this did not make it to my slides because I just remember this this morning as I was going on my run. And I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this quote. I, I remember this, reading this passage where Isaac Newton is encouraging this Christian woman from his church who was going through a very difficult time and felt extremely lonely. And she was sharing with Isaac Newton that she was about to give up on the, some of the key tenets of her faith, including the one that God is sympathetic or has empathy for sinners. And this is what he says. You know, he's, this is Isaac Newton, a very smart guy, very rationally. This is what he says to her. And I'm saying this to you. He says, keep close to the throne of grace. If we get no good by seeming to attempt to draw near to God, we may be sure that we will get none if we draw away from him. You know what he's saying? What he's saying is this. He's saying, look, when you go and pray to God, and you don't hear back from God, and you say, I'm going to stop because it's not working. He says, what's really not going to work (laughs) is if you draw yourself away from him. That's really not going to work. So seek, number one, proximity to God. And then when you seek proximity to God, trust, you have to learn how to trust in his loving kindness, which is the first line in verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. You have to learn to trust the steadfast love of God. Now, this word that's translated here as steadfast in the Hebrew is the word has said. Some versions translate it as loving kindness, as I already said, and some, um, some translate it as faithfulness. But none of these words can really truly make sense of what hesed truly means. 
Hesed is a word that describes God's covenantal love for his people. Why will God not abandon us? Why will God never forsake us in our greatest moments of difficulty? Because he has vowed to do so. He has signed a contract in blood that he will never abandon us and never forsake us. That is God's loving kindness. That is God's steadfast love for us. Now, we may give up on God. You may have given up on him, but he promises if you have put your faith in Christ to never to leave you or forsake you, to always to come to your aid. And we know that this is true. Again, David didn't know this. We have something special here that we know that David did not know when he wrote this. And that is that God's steadfast love was tested and proved when Jesus went to the cross for our sake. We deserve to be cast out. We deserve to be alone because of our sinfulness, because our rebellion against God And in Jesus' love for us, he takes upon himself our condition and our spiritual place. That is why the night before Jesus dies, he's in the garden and he's feeling extremely alone. Why is Jesus feeling extremely alone? Why Why is his soul in the garden conflicted? Because he's about to enter cosmic loneliness. I don't know if you remember this, but when Jesus is on the cross... He sort of cries out the first sentence of this psalm, how long, O Lord, when will you come to my rescue? Except that he's quoting Psalm 22 and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did the father not come to the aid of the son on the cross when the son cried out? It's so that every time that you and I cry out in our darkest moments, in our moments of loneliness, when we feel no empathy from our surroundings, when we do that, God can come to our rescue. God come to the rescue of his son so that he could come to our rescue. Jesus on the cross takes the curse that we deserve, eternal loneliness apart from God, so that we can live our lives in the presence of a God. That even though sometimes in life he feels that he's absent, he's always present because he has vowed to be that way, to be that person for us. A third thing that we must do is not only seek proximity with him, not only trust in his steadfast love, but we must seek proximity to others because the natural tendency that we have is to believe the lies of the devil and to say, hey, nobody understands what I'm going through in life. Nobody really gets me. There's no point in being with people. It's all all a lie. I mean, you saw in the statistics, there's 53% of Americans that feel the same way that you do. Do not, do not sever yourself from community. Look, these psalms are written to be sung and to be shared in the context of a people. David here is being vulnerable with people. Ultimately, community is uh, a gift from God in order to show this empathy of God to us so that we're able to break out of our seasons of loneliness. I was having a, uh, a conversation with someone uh, from Crossbridge over lunch this past week. It was actually Robbie. Is Robbie here? I, d- I didn't ask him permission to share this, but I will. I'm gonna... And if he has a problem, he can take it with me afterwards. 
But, but Robbie was saying to me, he says, uh, he's been at Crossbridge for many, many years. He was a deacon. Um, he's, been a, he's been a deacon for several years. He was a student first. He came to Miami to go to UM and uh, the, the marine biology school, and then he stayed. He started working there, and then he stayed. And he said he, there was a crucial moment in his life that he felt that he needed to leave Miami. Okay, like many of you, there's these moments where you're like, this is so expensive, this is ridiculous, so much traffic, you know, people are mean, you come up with the list, you're like, I got to leave. And so he thought about that, but he said that he was sitting in one of our Sunday services uh, when we were worshiping at the other location, and he said that Pastor Marcus, who was the campus pastor at the time, kept pressing on, saying, you got to join a community group, you got to join a community group, said that he had heard that over and over and over for the last seven weeks, and we were preaching a series on community back then, and he said, okay, I need to join a group. And he says that when he joined that group, God really changed his life story. He was thinking about leaving, but in that group, he met his wife, they're married to this day, and he found his best friends. And he says that the only reason why he was able to find purpose and he stayed was because he found community. Isn't that great? And that's the story of many of you here today. And it's going to be the story of some of you here today that have isolated yourself and has, have, have been afraid of taking risks to jumping into community. But listen, this is a gift from God to pull you out of seasons of darkness and loneliness when you go through them. And here's the last thing that we learn here, okay? It's worship. Look, look at how this psalm ends. He says in verse six, I will sing to the Lord. Worship is the greatest weapon that God has made available to us to defeat fear and loneliness in our life. You know why? There's, a, there's an author that one time said this, that when you pray and you worship God, when you worship him, you put your hands, you, you make a tight grip on this rope that pulls you out of the pit of subjectivity. Because oftentimes we can't name our darkness and our loneliness and we are confused about who God is. But when you worship, you reorient your heart. Your heart takes a tight grip on the truths about God and what he has done for you. When David does this, what does he remember? That God has been bountiful to him. He's dealt with him bountifully and kindly and mercifully. When you worship God, that's what happens and takes place. So here's very practical. When you're going through seasons of loneliness in life, pop that worship song on the car, in the car, and raise your hands. Then let, let the people just like start make fun of you and in the traffic light as you're raising your hands. Do it in your house. Go work out and do that as well. And when you come to church, when you come to this corporate gathering, where you find yourself, where I find myself today, don't leave here without putting all your heart out before God. Don't leave here without truly worshiping him and making these amazing statements about who he is. You're not only putting a tight grip on the rope that will take you out of the pit of subjectivity, but you're pulling God into your situation. 
And he promises to come like he always does. And so that's what we're going to do here today. So we're going to close our sermon. We're going to stand up and we're going to take a tight grip on this rope in the form of worship so God may pull us out of the pit of subjectivity and we may pull him in into our situation right now. And I promise you as you do that, you will be reminded of his steadfast love. And as you do this today, you will be reminded of how he has been merciful and graceful to you all along. And you will leave here with a bit more hope than you walked in today. Let's do that.